brothers and sisters. Welcome to Walking with Jesus Through the Word, one chapter per day. I'm Michael Talercio, pastoral intern of Forest Hill Presbyterian Church. It's day 493 of our daily walk through the Bible. We're getting sort of close to a year and a half in. Not quite there yet, but we're making our way. And today we're in the book of 2 Kings again, chapter 8. Let's ask for the Lord's help as we come to his word this morning. Father, thank you for this time that you've given us as people that need God and a God who cares, a God who is compassionate, a God who loves people who don't deserve his love. Thank you that that includes us. We pray that today as we open up your word, you would open it to our hearts, to our minds, and that it would transform how we live, that we would please Jesus, the one who deserves our obedience and our love and our faithfulness. We pray he would make it possible in us because without him, We have no hope. In his name we pray. Amen. All right. We're looking at 2 Kings chapter 8. Now Elisha had said to the woman whose son he had restored to life, Arise and depart with your household and sojourn wherever you can, for the Lord has called for a famine, and it will come upon the land for seven years. So the woman arose and did according to the word of the man of God. She went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. And at the end of the seven years, when the woman returned from the land of the Philistines, she went to appeal to the king for her house and her land. Now the king was talking with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, Tell me all the great things that Elisha has done. And while he was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life appealed to the king for her house and her land. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, here is the woman, and here is her son whom Elisha restored to life. And when the king asked the woman, she told him. So the king appointed an official for her, saying, Restore all that was hers, together with all the produce of the fields, from the day that she left the land until now. Now Elisha came to Damascus. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, was sick. And when it was told him, The man of God has come here, The king said to Haziel, Take a present with you, and go to meet the man of God, and inquire of the Lord through him, saying, Shall I recover from this sickness? So Haziel went to meet him, and took a present with him, all kinds of goods of Damascus, forty camels' loads. When he came and stood before him, he said, Your son Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, has sent me to you, saying, Shall I recover from this sickness? And Elisha said to him, Go, say to him, You shall certainly recover, but the Lord has shown me that he shall certainly die. And he fixed his gaze and stared at him until he was embarrassed. And the man of God wept. And Haziel said, Why does my Lord weep? He answered, Because I know the evil that you will do to the people of Israel. You will set on fire their fortresses, and you will kill their young men with the sword, and dash in pieces their little ones, and rip open their pregnant women. And Haziel said, What is your servant, who is but a dog, that he should do this great thing? Elisha answered, The Lord has shown me that you are to be king over Syria. Then he departed from Elisha, and came to his master, who said to him, What did Elisha say to you? And he answered, He told me that you would certainly recover. But the next day he took the bedcloth and dipped it in water and spread it over his face till he died, and Haziel became king in his place. In the fifth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, 
When Jehoshaphat was king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. And he walked in the way of the kings of Israel as the house of Ahab had done, for the daughter of Ahab was his wife. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah for the sake of David his servant, since he promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. In his days, Edom revolted from the rule of Judah and set up a king of their own. Then Joram passed over to Zair with all his chariots and rose by night, and he and his chariot commanders struck the Edomites who had surrounded him, but his army fled home. So Edom revolted from the rule of Judah to this day. Then Libna revolted at the same time. Now the rest of the acts of Joram and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Joram slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David, and Ahaziah his son reigned in his place. In the twelfth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaziah was twenty-two years old when he began to reign, and he ruled. He reigned one year in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Athaliah. She was a granddaughter of Amri, king of Israel. He also walked in the way of the house of Ahab and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, as the house of Ahab had done, for he was son-in-law to the house of Ahab. He went with Joram the son of Ahab to make war against Haziel king of Syria at Ramoth-Gilead, and the Syrians wounded Joram. And King Joram returned to be healed in Jezreel of the wounds that the Syrians had given him at Ramah when he fought against Haziel king of Syria. And Ahaziah the son of Jehoram king of Judah went down to see Joram the son of Ahab in Jezreel because he was sick. That's the end of the chapter. And it's a bit of a piecemeal chapter. Obviously, we're, we're kind of ending on a slight cliffhanger here. We don't quite know why at this point Jehoram, king of Judah, went down to see Joram, um, who is sick. Uh, we don't know what's going to come of that, at least. We'll find out as we continue. But as this chapter opens, uh, what we do find is a return to the story of the Shunammite woman, whom Elisha has known, uh, you may recall from a few chapters ago, how Elisha had, uh, by God's grace, uh, prophesied that this woman, uh, who had often provided a place for him to stay when he was traveling through the area, Elisha had prophesied that this woman would have a son, and then she did have a son. And then that woman's son subsequently uh, became ill and died, and then God used Elisha to raise this woman's son back to life. And the Lord is continuing to provide for this woman. We just see God's tender care for individuals in this way uh, as he enables Elisha to warn her of a coming famine. And so she, trusting the Lord by trusting the Lord's servant's word here, Elisha's word, uh, she goes down to the land of the Philistines and is there for seven years. Uh, she takes the Lord at his word and comes back after seven years and the famine has ended, just as the Lord said. Perfect timing with the Lord, isn't it? 
And perfect timing again, as God continues to provide for this woman because she comes back right at the moment that the king is talking to Elisha's servant, Gehazi, about her. Uh, Gehazi is relating to the king how Elisha raised this woman's son to life and for whatever reason, the, the king has a soft spot for her and he restores the land that she would have lost going down to the land of the Philistines, restores it to her as a result. So the Lord is just being so gracious. He's taking care of this woman and we're seeing how his timing is perfect. And we want to keep that in mind as we come to the next section of text, verses 7 down to 15, because the Lord's timing sometimes doesn't seem to be perfect to us. Uh, and... We get a hint of that, at least, in how it took so long for the prophecy that we read about in 1 Kings chapter 19, 1 Kings 19, uh, we read that God had said to Elijah that Hazael would be anointed king over Syria in place of Ben-Hadad. And now, many chapters later, some time later, that's finally occurring. Um, and it occurs in a sad way. Uh, as we even see Elisha weeping in today's passage, uh, that's just a little uh, foreshadowing, I think, of the evil that this man Hazel is going to bring about. Uh, at first, it doesn't seem like he's going to be—he's uh, going to do uh, terrible, unspeakable things to people. He seems like a good servant, at least to his master Ben Hadad. He goes where Ben Hadad tells him to. Uh, he does what Ben-Hadad says to do. He seems respectable to Elisha, uh, concerned even for him, asking him why he's weeping as Elisha's staring at him. And Elisha perhaps sees how Hazel is going to be king. We're not exactly sure, but what we do know is that Elisha sees what Hazel is going to do when he does become king and what he's going to do to the people of Israel, in fact. How he's going to do unspeakable things. He's going to kill people and in horrendous ways uh, once he does become king of Syria. And he becomes king of Syria by way of murdering Ben-Hadad, covering up his face. Even after Ben-Hadad recovers from his sickness, Hazel then murders him the next day. And what we see here is just, uh, what we want to take note of is that we can understand God's will uh, in different ways when we read the scriptures. There's, it's been said that there are three ways that we can understand God's will. Uh, we understand uh, different aspects of his will, that is. We understand his decretive will, where God decrees that something will happen. Independent of how God feels about it, God decrees what is going to take place. And that's what we read of in 1 Kings 19, when God decreed that Hazel would become king in place of Ben-Hadad. But he does so by violating what we would call God's preceptive will, where God gives precepts or commands, where he issues commands, where he says, uh, gives laws and says what he wants to happen and what he doesn't want to happen. And what he doesn't want to happen is for people to murder one another. We read in the Ten Commandments, commandment number six, you shall not murder. And that's the way, that's the means whereby Hazel becomes king in place of Ben-Hadad. He murders him. And so even though, according to God's decretive will, Hazel becomes king, he does so by violating God's preceptive will, by killing Ben-Hadad in order to become king. And another way, the third way that we might read of God's will uh, is uh, as we read of his will of disposition. And this is in line with his will, his preceptive will, 
it, it kind of undergirds and kind of also flows from his preceptive will. Um, it's tied up with it, uh, his will of disposition, which is just really a way of understanding uh, God's uh, attitude toward what is going to happen, uh, his, what, how he feels about what is happening. So obviously it's tied up in his preceptive will because he would never uh, prescribe or command something uh, that he didn't that, that his will of disposition didn't accord with. That was out of his uh, will of, outside of his will of disposition. Now, it might be in conflict with his, uh, we might say it might be in conflict with his uh, decretive will, his sovereign decretive will, what he sovereignly administers and desires to happen, to come about. Um, but as Christians, we can, we can be confident for a number of reasons. One, we don't have to serve kings like we've been reading of in and first and second kings, kings like Haziel, kings like Ben-Hadad, kings like uh, Jehoram or Joram, uh, who we read of later in the passage. We're not only not serving kings like that, and instead we're serving the perfect king, Jesus, uh, but we also can trust that God's will uh, is being done in Jesus such that even the terrible things that happen, again, not the things that God prescribes, um, not the things not the things that God does because he doesn't do any harm he doesn't do any violence to a person's will and he never uh, authors sin he allows people to make their foolish and sinful choices in order to bring about his decretive will he never violates his his uh, preceptive will what he says in his commands uh, but he is amazingly in Christ working all things together for the good of those who love Jesus and are called according to his purposes. And so even the bad things, even the things that contradict his preceptive will are fitting into his decretive will. And we can take, uh, we can rejoice in that. We can take hope in that, uh, in him, that, that he is going to bring about in his timing, whether it happens soon or happens much further down the road, in God's timing, uh, his decretive will is going to come to pass, and we are called to be faithful to his perceptive will and to be aware of his will of disposition, how he feels about people violating his will, in, in his perceptive will. In the meantime, we're, we're called to be concerned about that. And so as we come toward the end of the passage, we're just seeing uh, more transitions taking place uh, in uh, kingship there, in, in, uh, in particular with uh, Judah. Um, we're now seeing a king called Jehoram. We've already seen a king called Jehoram. That's the current king of Israel, now called Joram in today's passage in verse 16. Joram, son of Ahab. He was previously mentioned, known as Jehoram, but I think just for the sake of clarity here, because we do technically have two Jehorams now reigning, he's now called Joram. And the new king, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, not of Israel, Joram, Jehoram, son of Ahab being king of Israel, and now Jehoram, son of Jehoshaphat, being king of Judah. So Joram's the king of Israel. Jehoram is the king of Judah. They both technically have the same name. Uh, but there's some alliances that are being formed that are not good. Uh, we've seen that already. Uh, we're continuing to see it. We're continuing to see rebellion uh, from outside nations like Edom, the people of Edom. And we're just seeing how as the kings of Israel and Judah go further from the Lord, a conflict has arisen within the people and outside of the people from surrounding nations. 
And really, the call for us as we come away from this passage is to trust, trust the Lord's timing. Again, we worship a better king than the kings of Israel and the king, the king of Israel and the king of Judah and the kings of these foreign nations. And we can trust that he's going to return and execute judgment in his perfect timing. And so in the meantime, we want to be conscious of the fact that we belong to the king, the true king, Jesus, by way of his grace by way of God's kindness, just like he showed to the woman at the beginning of the chapter through Elisha. That's the kind of grace that he's showing to us in Christ. A grace, a provision, a kindness that we don't deserve, blessing and just taking care of people who don't deserve it. That's what we get from God in Christ. Uh, And we get that in the fullest way because Jesus didn't welcome neutral people. He didn't welcome people that uh, were just kind of good, kind of on the outskirts of society, like we might think of this woman that he's providing for in this chapter, but he welcomed sinners and wicked people, and that was us. And so as we live in light of these wicked kings eventually coming to judgment, as we'll see, may we come to the Lord Jesus in humility, knowing that we deserved the same future that we're going to read of for these kings. Uh, a future like that of Ben-Hadad that we read of in today's passage. Let's go to God in humility and let's ask him to open our, to loosen our lips, to speak of his goodness and his kindness and his love and his grace to others that they might too be brought in to this kingdom before, before that day of judgment comes. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have given us uh, a refreshment in 2 Kings 8 of your grace and your perfect timing and your how your will works, Lord. And we pray, Father, that we would see that it was your will to crush your son for the sake of undeserving people like us, uh, to be brought into his family and to be saved by his atoning death, his sacrificial death and his resurrection uh, and his perfect life. Uh, all of his righteousness applied to us. We pray, Lord, that we would be refreshed by the by the truth that all things work together for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purposes in Christ Jesus. You've brought undeserving people like us into your family, and now you work all things together according uh, according to your will, and it's for our good. Your decretive will for your people is for our good. May we be concerned to follow your preceptive will, and uh, may we be aware, ever aware of, uh, and uh, really humble, uh, humbled by and uh, really concerned for your will of disposition. Uh, may we be uh, aware of it. May we be uh, softened to it. And may we live in line with it, Lord, as we follow your preceptive will. Would you enable this through your Holy Spirit for the good of your people, for the good of creation, and for the good of the whole world, really? as we trust Jesus and do what he has told us to in your word. We pray this in his name. Amen. I'm glad you could join us for this time in 2 Kings 8. I hope it will have been encouraging for you to see that God is doing exactly what he wants in his perfect timing, and we are called to obey him in the process and really to trust in his son who has done what we needed him to do in order for us to be saved and to live in light of his preceptive will and his will of disposition. I pray uh, that you'll do that today and that you'll be able to join us again soon. God bless.